Whether or not you're a football fan, you've probably heard of the name O.J. Simpson before. Orenthal James Simpson, called O.J., was a Hall of Fame running back in the National Football League. He was a very talented football player. He had even won the Heisman Trophy back in college. He also had a thriving career in acting and did a lot of paid advertisements. But the public's perception of him would change forever on June 17, 1994, because that was the day that he was charged with two counts of murder for allegedly killing his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman. Now, before we talk about how this all started, let's talk a little bit about O.J.'s background. O.J. was born in California, and he was raised there as well, specifically in San Francisco. And when he was younger, he lived in housing projects with his family. He joined a street gang when he was a teenager and was incarcerated at the San Francisco Youth Guidance Center for a short period of time. His childhood sweetheart named Marguerite described him as a really awful person back then. After he was arrested for the third time, the famous baseball player Willie Mays persuaded him to change for the better. When he got to high school, he started to play football and then eventually went on to play at the University of Southern California, otherwise known as USC. After USC, he went on to play in the NFL and became a football legend, eventually being inducted into the Football Hall of Fame. At the age of 19, he married Marguerite, and they had three kids. Ten years later, in 1977, he met Nicole Brown while she was working as a waitress at a nightclub, and he started to date her despite still being married to his wife. He didn't divorce Marguerite until 1979, which was two years after he had met Nicole. Nicole and OJ eventually got married and had two kids themselves, and they were married for seven years before Browns filed for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. Now before we go into the day of the murder, let's talk briefly about Ron Goldman. Ron Goldman was the second person that was found murdered at the crime scene, and at the time of his murder, he was only 25. He was really good friends with Nicole. However, they were apparently so close that some speculated that they were actually more than friends and were instead dating. So the relationship between Ron and Nicole is something that many people think could have been a motive for OJ if he did murder them. The prosecution of the case actually cited this as a motive as well. They said that OJ had acted out of jealousy as he was reported to be jealous of other men who were seeing Nicole after their divorce. It's worthwhile to mention that OJ and Nicole still lived in the same neighborhood. They just lived in um, separate houses that were about six minutes away from each other. Now, before we talk about the famous trial um, regarding this case, let's take a brief look at the timeline of events and facts that happened. On June 12, 1994, at around 6.30 p.m., Nicole was at a restaurant with her kids and some family. After they had left the restaurant, Nicole's sister actually called the restaurant at 9.15 p.m. because Nicole's mom had left her glasses there. At around 9 to 9.30 p.m., Brian Kalin, whose nickname was Cato, and O.J. Simpson went to McDonald's. Cato was a guest who was staying at O.J.'s house at the time. And they returned home at around 9.45 p.m. Around 9.50 p.m., Ron Goldman left the restaurant with the glasses. And at around 10.15 p.m., Nicole's neighbor hears a dog barking, and this dog later becomes important to the prosecution's case. So OJ was supposed to take a flight from L.A. to Chicago at 11.45 p.m. that day. At 10.45, the limo driver who was supposed to take him to the airport arrived at his house. 
At 10.40 p.m., Kato, the house guest, heard three loud bumps outside the guest house he was staying in. And from 10.40 p.m. to 10.55 p.m., the limo driver kept buzzing the intercom, but there was no answer. Just before 11 p.m., he sees a figure walking across the driveway. And the way he describes the characteristics of this figure is very similar to what O.J. looks like. At around 11 p.m., when the driver buzzes the intercom once more, O.J. actually answers this time, and he says that he overslept and had just hopped out of the shower. O.J. ends up making his 11.45 p.m. flight and goes to Chicago. And at 12.10 a.m. the next day on June 14, 2023, neighbors were led to Nicole's house by her dog, and they found the dead bodies of Nicole and Ron. Soon after, the police arrived at the crime scene, and they found what was a very brutal murder scene. It was very bloody, and Nicole was almost decapitated, and the two victims had been stabbed to death. And when a detective called OJ, who was in Chicago at the time, to let him know that his ex-wife had been killed, his response wasn't what happened or something you'd expect, like something you'd expect a normal person to react like. Instead, he responded by asking who did it. Now, at the scene of the crime, the investigators found multiple pieces of evidence. One piece of evidence they found was a knitted hat, and the knitted hat had hair DNA that matched OJ's. They also found a bloody footprint, and this was specifically a pair of um, Bruno Molly designer shoes that had made this print, and they were in the size 12. But guess who also owned a pair of Bruno Molly designer shoes in the size 12? OJ Simpson. The bloody shoe prints were also in the Bronco that OJ owned and on Nicole's dress. But most famously of all, they found a blood-stained glove. This glove was a dark brown leather glove from Bloomingdale's, and it had the blood of Nicole and Ron on it. And they had only found one glove at the crime scene, but they had found a matching glove behind OJ's house. And this matching glove also had the same blood. And this blood was practically everywhere. It was at the scene of the crime, it was in OJ's driveway, it was in OJ's house, it was in the route between the crime scene and OJ's house, and it was also in OJ's car and a sock in his bedroom. After OJ arrived back from Chicago, he was questioned for three hours by the LAPD, but was eventually released. During this questioning, the police noticed that OJ had a cut on his finger, and considering that this interview happened the day after the murder, this definitely raised some suspicions. The coroner had predicted that a certain knife was used to stab Nicole and Ron to death. But OJ had also purchased the same knife that the coroner predicted was used. The knife and the shoe were never found, though. So the evidence wasn't looking too good for OJ. On June 17, 1994, OJ was actually supposed to turn himself in at 11 a.m. But he famously did not do so and instead led law enforcement in a low-speed chase in Southern California while riding a white Bronco. This led him to be declared a fugitive. And this Bronco was owned and driven by his friend Al Cowlings. While OJ had the exact same white Bronco, the car that was used in the chase wasn't his. So OJ was a passenger in the car while his friend Al was driving. When Al was later asked why he didn't stop for the police, Al said that OJ had a gun to his head and was threatening to kill himself and was suicidal. This theory was actually supported by the fact that OJ had a suicide note. In it, he thanked those who were in his life, and he stated his innocence, 
This is a direct quote from the note, and it reads, First, everyone understand. I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. I loved her, always have, and always will. If we had a problem, it's because I loved her so much. But the chase finally ended at OJ's house, and the police searched the car. When they found, um, when they searched the car, they found makeup adhesive, a fake mustache, a goatee, OJ's passport, and a gun. So OJ had all the materials that was needed to go undercover somewhere. He had a whole disguise. He had a whole fake mustache. But it, it's very, um, it's a very stereotypical costume in a way. And this whole chase was broadcasted live, and it was watched by about a hundred million Americans. Now let's talk about the trial itself. This is by far one of the most famous trials in history. Some even called it the trial of the century because it had everything that inter- interested the majority of the American public. One expert said that it was like America's first true reality show. It was the first wall-to-wall televised trials. So there was a lot of publicity surrounding it. The judge presiding over the trial was Judge Lance Ito, and he was the one who allowed the trial to be televised, and he actually received a lot of scrutiny for his decision because he seemed to enjoy the publicity and all the press the case was receiving. Now, the lead prosecutor was Marsha Clark, and she was joined by Christopher Durden and some others. OJ's defense team, though, was very, very strong. It was called the legal dream team, and you'll see why, because every single lawyer on the team was very prominent, very famous. There was Alan Dushowitz, who was a Harvard law professor, Effley Bailey, Robert Shapiro, Robert Kardashian, who was actually Kim Kardashian's dad, and also a good friend of OJ's, but his ex-wife, Kris Jenner, was a very good friend of Nicole's. And most famously, there was Johnny Cochran, and he is a very famous defense attorney who represented many celebrities, such as Jim Brown, Todd Bridges, and Michael Jackson. He was very charismatic, very approachable, and he had a certain mastery of the law. And while most of the lawyers on the team didn't get along with each other because they were always competing for the limelight, their efficiency and their strength in terms of knowing the law was unbeaten. It was, it was really good. Now, January 24th, 1995 was the first day of the trial. The prosecution's opening statement focused on love, lust, a loss of control, and they specifically said that OJ killed Nicole because he couldn't have her. The defense's opening statement, on the other hand, focused on the LAPD and the staff and the mistakes that they made along with the contaminated evidence, or so they claimed. They claimed there was contaminated evidence. Now, during the trial, the rocky relationship between OJ and Nicole was emphasized by the prosecution. They mentioned over three dozen times that they claim OJ beat and abused Nicole. Some of the things they mentioned included OJ trying to push her out of a moving car, pounding her Mercedes with a baseball bat, locking her in a wine cellar. And they got all this information from Um, The notes Nicole wrote for her divorce attorney, her diary entries, various police reports, and interviews with doctors, and a lot more. One of the witnesses called to the stand was a police detective who ran into Nicole in 1989. She had apparently ran out of the bushes, wearing only her bra, while yelling, he's gonna kill me. 
It was also revealed that Nicole called 911 in 1993, saying that OJ broke into her house through the back door while ranting and raving and screaming and was just going nuts. Nicole's own sister even took the stand and testified that she saw Nicole getting beaten by OJ in real life. He apparently pushed her against the wall and kicked her out of the house. There were also eight police visits that were responding to domestic disturbances. In 1989, O.J. was even charged with spousal abuse, and he pled no contest to the charges. So, O.J.'s history of spousal abuse was very much established during the trial. But the impact of these testimonies and evidence was subdued by the evidence that the defense um, provided in counter to those claims. The defense that the defense provided... Oh, the evidence that the defense provided showed that O.J. wasn't on bad terms with Nicole's family. Defense showed a video of O.J. with the Brown family hours before Nicole's murder. In the video, they're hugging, they're shaking hands, O.J. was picking his son up, and they all seemed super close. And this ultimately made O.J. seem like a family man. So, um, the defense's claims that O.J. was on good terms with the Brown family really lessened the impact that the prosecution's claims of spousal abuse had. Now, remember when Nicole's neighbor heard a dog barking around 10 p.m. the night she was murdered? Well, the prosecution said that the dog was barking because it was at that time that Ron and Nicole were killed. And the reason this is important is because the dog is in a way the only witness of the murder. There are no human witnesses that saw the crime being committed, so the prosecution was not being able to go off of the testimony of anyone who was at the scene at the time, so they had to use the dog. <laughs> now, Kato Kalin, who was the guy staying at OJ's guest house at the time, was actually a witness for the prosecution. He testified for four days, but one member of the jury later said in an interview that they thought he was a total idiot during their deliberation. Kato later said in another interview that he took the trial very seriously, and he wanted to make sure that he answered everything correctly. And in doing so, he seemed a little odd and eccentric because he was trying so hard to make sure that he was answering each question in full detail. And if you look at the videos of him testifying, you do sort of understand why the jury thought he was odd because he was, you know, using his hands and using body language and a bunch of other motions to explain his answers. And it just looked a little funky. But during this interview, he actually said that he feels totally misunderstood. And while I was researching, I actually felt really bad for him because he just wanted to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, but in turn was mocked for it, which is just really sad. And after the trial was over for quite some time, he later said in an interview that he thinks OJ is guilty. And this is coming from someone who was staying at OJ's house at the time. Now, a key aspect of OJ's defense was racism and incompetence by the LAPD. The defense team wanted to portray um, the LAPD as racist in order to invalidate any of the evidence and testimonies they might have had. One way they did, th they did this was by showing evidence of um, Simpson in handcuffs as soon as he arrived from Chicago, before he had even been questioned. They used this video to argue that there had been a rush in judgment by the police simply because of OJ's race. There was also a detective from the LAPD named Mark Furman, and he was one of the first people to arrive at OJ's house, and he arrived there first by jumping the fence. And he was actually the one who found a lot of the prosecution's central evidence. 
and by this I mean he found evidence that was really important to the prosecution's case, like the blood-stained glove, he was the one who found it. And during the trial, the defense attorney asked him if he had ever said the N-word in the past 10 years, and Mark Furman was very, very adamant that he had not said the N-word ever in the past 10 years. And apparently, everyone in the courtroom knew that he was being set up except him. There's a screenwriter named Laura who had actually interviewed Furman once and recorded their interview on tape. And on these tapes, Mark was actually recorded saying the N-word dozens and dozens and dozens of times. He actually used racial slurs over 40 times in one recorded sitting. And this isn't just one sitting. So the defense moved to play these recordings um, of Furman saying the F-word or N-word in court. But, um, of course, the prosecution tried to stop this by arguing that that word would upset some black jurors. Ultimately, the judge decided to let only two out of the dozens of times be played in court. So Mark Furman's identity as a racist was very much established in court, and people largely started to view him as racist scum. This was a major blow to the prosecution's case, but you could see how this would have greatly impacted or benefited OJ's case. As his defense was largely surrounded on racism and incompetence of the LAPD, Mark Furman being racist was a huge win. The defense said that Mark had actually planted evidence, including the glove, and they asked him on stand if he had ever planted evidence or manufactured evidence, and he took the fifth. Taking the fifth means that you are exercising your right to remain silent and not incriminate yourself pursuant to the Fifth Amendment right of the U.S. Constitution. And the silence or refusal to answer a question cannot be used against you, but it certainly doesn't have the best implications. So this certainly benefited the defense as well. The defense also pointed out technical errors that the LAPD made. They highlighted that evidence was not packaged correctly, it was left overheated in a van, some officers were wearing gloves, others weren't, and they also claimed that the crime scene and the LAPD laboratory was contaminated. There was a witness named Dennis Fung who was a part of LAPD's criminology team, and his testimony was absolutely torn apart by the defense attorney who was questioning him. The attorney was able to point out numerous inconsistencies in his statement and just made him look really unreliable. Now, one of the most, if not the most, famous scenes from this trial is when OJ tried on the gloves. And something I found very interesting is that it was the prosecution who asked OJ to try on the gloves. Not the defense, the prosecution. It was prosecutor Christopher Darden who had specifically asked OJ to do this. And he did it despite the protests of his lead prosecutor, Marsha Clark. And it's very well known in the legal field that you never ask a question or ask for a demonstration that you do not know the answer to. But as we now know, OJ was allowed to try on the gloves, and the gloves famously did not fit. Now, there are numerous potential reasons as to why the gloves did not fit. One, of course, being that OJ did not actually commit the crimes and that he was actually innocent. But the other reasons don't necessarily align with that perspective. The glove had been continuously frozen and unfrozen as a preservation method, and this could have changed the size of them. Author Larry Schiller says that Simpson had arthritis and could have stopped taking his anti-inflammatory medicine prior to trying on the glove, which would have made his hand change sizes. 
Another person said that he wasn't actually yanking at the glove when trying to put it on, but was instead pulling his arm down with it. So it looked like he was trying it on, but he was actually just moving his whole arm with the glove, so he wasn't like actually pulling it onto his hand. The glove was also soaking blood, and when gloves get wet, they shrink up. And this actually relates to what a jury member said. The majority of the public thought that the prosecution blew their entire case by this whole glove scenario. You know, they thought the whole tr- uh, the whole case was over. They thought that this cemented OJ's status as innocent. But one jury member said that the glove not fitting didn't play a huge role in his decision. And the reason for this is because the gl- jury member was a truck driver. And he had to wear a lot of gloves as a result. So he knew that gloves shrunk when they got wet. So the fact that this jury member didn't care that much that the gloves didn't fit shows that it's not as big of a deal or a problem for the prosecution as the public made it out to be. But it is another reason, um, it is another potential reason for why the gloves didn't fit because they were soaked in blood and they could have shrunk. And the closing arguments of this case were very memorable. Lead prosecutor Marcia Clark brought up Mark Furman in her closing. And she said that the fact Mark was a racist and lied on stand does not mean that the prosecution didn't prove that OJ was guilty. And I think that this was sort of her last attempt to convince the jury that Mark Furman and his whole testimony and history was not a big reason to believe that OJ wasn't guilty. Because I'm sure that Mark Furman played a huge role in the jury's deliberation. I mean, it had to. He he was absolutely demolished on stand. But the defense's closing argument gave us probably the most famous line in American legal history. Johnny Cochran, in his closing argument, said, If it does not fit, you must acquit. And this was obviously a reference to the glove that did not fit on OJ's hand. Now, this trial happened for nine months, nine months, more than 260 days. The jury members were isolated in a hotel, unable to see their friends, unable to see their families for more than 260 days. So I imagine that it was sort of a relief when they were finally able to go and deliberate because deliberation was going to be the beginning to an end of a very long trial. OJ actually seemed to consider this because he didn't testify in um, court, and while he was explaining why he would not testify, he said that he was mindful of the stamina and fatigue of the jury. Now, people expected the jury to deliberate for weeks, days. Even Johnny Cochran said that he thought that they would take quite some time to deliberate given the sheer amount of information that was presented during the span of nine months. But to everyone's astonishment, the jury only deliberated for four hours before coming to a unanimous conclusion. This was completely the opposite of what everyone expected. But on October 3rd, 1995, the verdict was announced. And the jury's verdict was that O.J. Simpson was not guilty. When the jury first went into the room to deliberate, the votes were split up. Ten people thought he was not guilty, and two people thought that he was guilty. One jury member said in an interview that it was not hard at all to get the other two jury members on board to vote that OJ was not guilty. And I think that this proves quite some things. First, it shows that while majority of the public thinks that OJ is still guilty, there was more than enough evidence presented during the trial to prove that it might not have been OJ. Because the defense's goal was just to plant a seed of doubt in the jury's mind and the fact that 10 people 
thought that shows that they were very successful. And I think the defense was just too good. It. I don't think that um, OJ's verdict of not guilty is because the prosecution was bad or lackluster. Just the defense was too strong. OJ had a lot of money, and you have to remember that with all that money, he was able to put together one of the most talented and strong legal teams of all time. I mean, they're literally called the legal dream team. So I do feel as though many people could say that the prosecution was bad during this trial, but in reality, OJ's defense was just too too strong and too smart and too expensive, probably. <laughs> The jury member also mentioned in the interview that he still believes that the police framed OJ. He said that there was not a doubt in his mind that the LAPD had done something wrong in the case. This shows how strong and affected the defense's argument of the LAPD using racism to frame OJ and contaminate evidence was. It just shows how smart of an angle to the case that was. Because you have to think about the composition of the jury. The jury was made of eight black people, one Hispanic person, one white person, and two mixed people. So the jury selection went very well for the defense because their case is based around racism and the racism of the LAPD. So having a majority-minority population jury is very helpful to the defense. Now let's talk a little bit about the public's opinion of this case while the trial was occurring. There was a clear racial division at the time. 77% of white people thought that OJ was guilty, but 77% of black people thought that OJ was not guilty. And I believe that the reason for such a strong racial division was, once again, the defense's decision to base their case on race. By attacking the LAPD for mishandling and planting and allegedly framing Simpson, the defense was able to strike a chord with many of the people in the community who were black. One expert even said that race partly determined the trial's outcome. People saw what they wanted to see, and part of that was influenced by their race. This was partly augmented by the race riots that occurred a couple years prior to the trial. In 1992, Rodney King was brutally beaten by the LAPD for no reason at all, and the assaulting officers were acquitted of all charges, resulting in many, many riots. It was a very violent time in LA at the time. Now, there are numerous theories on who could have killed Nicole and Ron if OJ didn't do it. One theory is that Glenn Rogers, who was a serial killer, killed them. He apparently confessed to his brother while on death row to murdering Nicole and Ron. However, OJ still would have been found guilty as he was apparently hired by OJ to steal earrings from Nicole and kill her if she got in the way. But it is also possible that he was serving another jail sentence at the time of the murders, so it would have been impossible for him to commit the murders if he was already in jail for other murders. Another theory was created by a private investigator who was very famous and very well known, and his name was Bill Deere. He was one of the few private investigators that was inducted into the Police Hall of Fame, and he said that it could have been Jason Simpson, who was O.J.'s son from his previous marriage. One criticism of this theory, though, is that the evidence is almost entirely circumstantial, but Around the time of the murder, Jason was on probation for attacking his former boss with a knife, and Nicole and Ron were stabbed to death using a knife. He also attacked two of his former girlfriends and cut off the hair of one of them with, you guessed it, a knife. He almost broke one of his former girlfriend's backs by throwing her into the bathtub. 
and he also had intermittent rage disorder, which is an impulse control disorder characterized by sudden episodes of unwarranted anger. And here, he apparently stopped taking his medication for his disorder around the time that the murder occurred. But his alibi for the night was that he was working at a restaurant at the time, and he had a time card to back it up. But his timestamp that day was handwritten, which is very suspicious considering that the electronic time clock was fully working at the restaurant at the time. There were also numerous pictures of Jason wearing a knitted hat, and as we recall, a knitted hat was found at the crime scene. So according to this theory, OJ was only there at the crime scene that night to protect his son. Now, when the jury read out their verdict of not guilty, the looks of the family members of Ron Golding was terrible. Or Goldman was terrible. They were obviously not very happy. In fact, you could even hear Ron's sister's audible gasps and cries while the jury foreperson is reading out the verdict. So it wasn't very surprising when the Goldman family decided to file a wrongful death lawsuit. And this was a civil trial between the Goldman family and OJ, so it wasn't a criminal trial between the state of California and OJ. The Goldman's attorney was a low-profile business attorney named Daniel Petricelli. And this was not his typical area of expertise because he was a business lawyer when it came to law. But he was able to do something that the prosecutors were unable to do during the criminal trial, which was proof that OJ owned a pair of shoes that had made the footprint marks at the crime scene. And this was ultimately very successful, and OJ had to pay the Goldman family fifty-three or $33.5 million in damages. And you might be thinking that this would be the end of OJ's experience in the courtroom, but you would be wrong. In 2007, OJ was arrested for armed robbery and kidnapping, but this time he was sentenced to 33 years in prison. Given his not-so-young age at the time, it is possible that he'll spend the rest of his life in prison. But right before this happened, in 2006, OJ wrote a book, and it was titled, If I Did It, which was a very hypothetical account of the murder, just like the title suggests. And at first, it was canceled due to public outrage, but later it was published with the benefits going towards the Goldman family. The O.J. Simpson trial is probably one of the most famous trials in history, and the verdict is also probably one of the most controversial verdicts in history. But whether O.J. is the actual killer or not, my heart just goes out towards the Brown and Golden family. To lose loved ones in the way they did is just simply tragic and something no one should ever have to go through. And I certainly hope that Nicole and Ron are in a better place today.